Hello and welcome to Film School Dropout. I am your host, Ben Friedman, recording this intro here on October 24th, Tuesday evening. And I just, I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode. This one was a joy of all joys to have. This is Hugo with Mark Ellis. Mark Ellis, for those who do not know him, he is one of the founders of Schmoes No, a YouTube movie review channel uh, that has had many iterations over the years. They were at one point at Collider. They were at one point at a few other podcast networks hosted by Christian Harloff, Mark Ellis. They did movie reviews in really the kind of the earliest stages of YouTube. I want to say they started in 2009, 2010. These are one of the guys that I watched growing up and kind of helped develop my love of film. Mark Ellis uh, is a guy that I've met before. He's an extremely funny comedian, podcast host, movie critic. Well, however you want to describe him, he does a little bit of it all. Extremely talented, extremely funny. He's going on tour right now. If you get the chance, go check out Mark Ellis in a city near you. He is so freaking funny, and I'm so glad to have had him on for this movie, a movie that he and I both have a fondness for, and that is Martin Scorsese's Hugo. So without further ado, because I don't want to deprive you guys any more of Mark Ellis speaking, let's get into it. This is the Hugo podcast, and thank you again to Mark Ellis for joining me for this episode. I had a blast getting to talk with him for an hour plus. So I hope you all enjoy. Hello and welcome to Film School Dropout. I finally decided a name on this podcast after recording like 20 plus episodes. It's changed basically every podcast uh, that I've recorded, but we're sticking with it. It's Film School Dropout. We're talking Martin Scorsese. And today I am talking to, I am so excited to have this guest on. I should just introduce myself real quick. My name is Ben Friedman, film critic. Joining me today is comedian podcaster youtube legend uh someone who has been played on my car radio an obscene amount of times just by accident not that i don't enjoy your stuff it's just i don't know if you have it uh i have your i think it's 2009 comedy special that posted to itunes <laughs> yeah get to the castle uh came out That's in a, a, i think 2011 or 2012 something like that so yeah yeah, so here's the story of that. So I downloaded it on iTunes, right? And I don't know if you have the same issue with your car, but my car, the exact second I like get in, it just automatically defaults to my iTunes, like my <laughs> iTunes songs. And I only have two, I think, like albums on there. I have Bo Burnham's like first album and I have your stand-up special. And so... Every time I get into the car, it's either you or both. That's good company to be in. And the issue I have in my car, which has like the Apple CarPlay and stuff, is the only time something like that happens is I don't listen to like a lot of my friends' podcasts at all. I primarily listen to like sports podcasts. But if I happen to like just jump in, oh, let's see what Knapsock's talking Let's see what Harloff's talking about today. Inevitably, the next time those guys get in my car for a ride, which is often because God forbid they drive themselves <laughs> anywhere, that podcast will come on. And I'm like, no, I'm literally not listening to you that much. Like, don't get a big head about this. I was bored and I just wanted to see if I'm keeping pace with everybody else. I should just introduce you to the world. It's Mark Ellis. 
here on the show today. Mark, how are you doing? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm doing much better now that I'm, I'm talking to you, Ben, and, and whatever this show is named this week, because I <laughs> this is one of my favorite backgrounds. And obviously, coming from that YouTube world, which most know, I've seen a lot of backgrounds, seen a lot of backdrops in my day. I don't know that I've seen a bobblehead collection the Sacramento Kings based as incredible as the one I'm looking at. I mean, I see Stoyakovich, I see Mike Vivi, I see Weber. I'm looking for, um, is that, is that uh, Scott uh, Pollard? I think I see, where's white chocolate Jason Pollard Williams? See in there? Let me see. So back here I have, I'll just pull it out. Why not? I got oh, the there it is. Slam magazine, rookie of the year one, Jason Williams. Which oh is one of my favorites that I own. That uh, is, I, you talk about a collector's item, man, because that was right when I was like seriously hoping every day I was either in high school or college, playing ball all the time, organized pickup, you you name it. And we loved watching Jason Williams and then trying and failing at those moves on the playground the next day. Like I remember the behind the back and then, you know, doink with the elbow pass that he did in the all-star game. It was just still something that every time I'm on the court, I try to recreate it, and it never goes as planned. Williams is an interesting one for Sacramento Kings fans, at least in the collection world, because he's not a what's it called? He's not on our you know championship roster. Obviously, we didn't win the championship, but like right. he's not with us for the Western Conference. So like the merchandise for Williams is kind of not a ton. Like you know, you get your Webers all the time. I have this rare one. I don't know how familiar you are with Sacramento. It's a Chris Weber one. And yeah. it is from his restaurant that he opened up in Sacramento that went defunct like maybe 10 years ago. I think that's wow. it's, that's a really rare one. And then I'll show it to you real quick. I'll move my camera. I don't know if you can see it well behind the lights. That's a three foot Mike Bibby uh wow. bobblehead. Signed by That's Mike Bibby. Great. Really? You you lugged that thing to a signing? Uh no, I actually bought it and it was signed, luckily. Oh, okay. I was like, you just like, like I'm just bringing this life-size mannequin to this bookstore to get Mike Bibby to sign it, but it's still worth it. You don't understand how controversial this buy was for everyone except me. Cause I was like, I saw it. I'm like, that's, that has to be like, that's coming home with me. No question. <laughs> and then my girlfriend saw it and she's like, that's not staying in your room. Yeah. And then my mom saw it and she's like, that's not staying in the house. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So I'm like, I have it delegated into my desk. And obviously I don't know where to display it behind me. So he's just kind of delegated to behind the closet, lurking, uh, wearing my Sacramento Kings gear like a good point guard should be. You don't have to be the center of attention. It, you're distributing. Of course, he can hit a clutch jumper if he needs to, but, and, and he wasn't, he was very more, you know, he, he kind of gravitated towards shooting guard sometimes too, but I remember watching him at Arizona where he did win a chip and just like that team was, it was like watching a pinball game, man. They were up and down the court, beating Kentucky. It was, uh, it was just a good time for hoops in general, watching, watching those squads. This is exciting for me because you, I now have a guest on my show who can actually properly talk sports. Cause I've had, <laughs> I, I won't name any names, but I've definitely had people who do the Bill Simmons type thing where they'll try to like reference, like they'll make a sports analogy. And I can just tell right away, you've never watched sports in your life. 
Yeah, and you have to appease them. It's it, it it's kind of like like if you're on a first date and you find out she didn't like she's never seen Back to the Future or something like that. You kind of have to go through the motions, but inside yeah. you're dying a little bit. It's it's a little painful to do it, and especially when they build on the analogy. But with that all said, Mark, you're joining me. Uh, I've been a fan of yours for years. I, I'm trying to think. I. I don't I doubt you remember this. I've met you I think two or three times in my life. Cuz before I was a critic, I was obviously just kid slash in college. Uh so I went to what year was it? The 2019 Schmodown Awards in Oh at wow. The, at the comedy club. I was the first person there just randomly like cuz my <laughs> Uber dropped me off like 6 hours early cuz I just got off the plane. So I think we we talked for like a fairly good amount because it was me outside the comedy store and no one else for a good like four hours. That's hysterical. Then I definitely did talk to you and I remember that because I, especially if we're doing like a show like that or if like it's a theater and I'm doing it, you know, I mean, usually fans are are pretty good. Like they get there on time and all that stuff. But I like getting to the venue super early so I can get in and before there's a line or anything. So um but yeah I think I think we saw you out there and it's like all right well this might be the only guy that comes. So let's let's make sure we, we make him feel welcome. But um yeah that I was a it, it was it was a great time and you know I I think back on on those days with just nothing but great memories of of doing the Schmodown. Yeah, and it's been exciting because I've had a handful of uh, guests who have appeared on the Schmodown who are appearing in this series, which <laughs> I should just mention, we're talking Martin Scorsese for this. Uh, specifically, we're talking the 2011 film Hugo, directed by, of course, Martin Scorsese, based on a 2007 children's book. And I just kind of want to start with you, Mark, here. Uh, obviously, I know who you are. I know kind of where your movie fandom lies and all that. What's your relationship specifically? Because I don't know if I've ever really heard you talk about this with the man, the myth, the legend himself, Marty Scorsese. Um, I don't know him well enough to call him Marty, but I have actually never met him. I, I feel like the first time I came across a Scorsese film was not the ones you might think it was i was at, up at my grandma's place we go visit grandma in new jersey every uh, summer and you know all the relatives and all that stuff come, uh, came in and i have what i would call the ultimate cool aunt uh aunt amy because she was like kind of in between generations she's like 15 years younger than my mom and the rest of her siblings and then she's about 15 years older than us so she was kind of like that babysitter you could like talk into like taking you to see an R-rated movie like Pet Cemetery way too early or uh, stuff like that. She let us watch one night. We were visiting grandma. Um, the whole family, I think, stayed up to watch this because it's De Niro. It's Scorsese. It's Nick Nolte. It was Cape Fear <laughs> was the first one. And it scared the crap out of me. And that might have been my intro to Robert De Niro as well, because like I was scared to watch the rest of that dude's movies because of how like menacing he is as Max Cady in Cape Fear. And I still have like, I, I can conjure that score anytime. Obviously when he's watching the movie in the back, smoking a cigar, laughing and being obnoxious. Like that was my, that was my intro to the world of Scorsese. Then you get a little bit older and you start, you know, Goodfellas is on constantly on TV and casinos started picking up. So, um, you know, always been a huge fan of his filmmaking. And then, 
when uh, Christian Harloff and I started doing Schmoes No and we got to go to movie screenings, then it became like an event, you know? We were too late for The Departed, but I think um, Hugo might've been the first one that we saw in theaters. Uh, Silence after that had a, you know, just a, a, a tremendous impact on me just as a film fan. I really admire what he did with that movie. And just to see where that young man's come, you know? The, the other one is Shine a Light, is the Rolling Stones flick that he directed. Like that It's so fun to watch Marty on camera for the first 10 minutes, just so frazzled and trying to figure out what the Stones' set list is going to be that night. And Nick hasn't given it to him yet. It's just, it, it, it's, it's great. And, and so I love seeing somebody's work, but I also love seeing who they are as a person, what makes them tick. And so through his filmography, you kind of get to do both with Scorsese. Is the Shine the Light one the one that has Christina Aguilera as a part of the band? Briefly, is that? that I believe so, but don't quote me on that. Um, I, I, I she's got a great voice, but that that wouldn't have been the highlight for me. Um, <laughs> but it, it just honestly because like I because I watched it fairly recently, um, not in let's just say the most um, memorable state of mind. Um, Because I had come home from the Rolling Stone show that I saw at SoFi. And by the way, a great comedian friend of mine, Tom Rhodes, you should have on this show at some point. Uh, you know, when you settle on a name, give it time. And then uh, uh, you guys can have dueling bobbleheads because he's got literally maybe 75, 100 classic baseball, mostly Dodgers, but other players as well, bobbleheads in his place. So I got to get the bobblehead folk together. But we saw Stones. And then I came back and it was probably one in the morning by the time I got back and opened a few more Coors Lights, watched Shine a Light again. And so that was the most recent time I've seen it. So, Christina, if you're watching, I don't remember if that was you, but I do remember how great of a film Marty put together with that band that makes it pretty easy for you. So I'm just going to guess by the Cape Fear antidote that you're probably <laughs> way too young to be seeing Cape Fear. Way too young to be seeing Cape Fear, man. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, like at that time, I, I had no idea it was a remake. I had no idea. Um, you know, I mean, I knew who Juliette Lewis was. I knew probably of De Niro. I knew Nick Nolte. But yeah, man, that one, that one kept me up a few nights at Grandma's house. Did you, when you're watching Cape Fear, post seeing it, all that stuff, is that when you're like, okay, I need to see more of his films? Or is there like a period later on in your life where you're like, okay, now I'm interested in Martin Scorsese? Based on how much that movie scared me, I was like, I need to see less Martin Scorsese. I never need to see another movie from this guy again, because uh, I'm afraid De Niro is going to come into Grandma's house at 3 a.m. But then, you know, you start to appreciate the craftsmanship that goes into it. And there was probably the release of Casino, like reading about it. I didn't see Casino in the theater when I was like, you know, 13, 14, 15, somewhere around there. But I remember seeing like, this is an event that this guy makes uh, movies that you have to go see. This guy, it, it, you don't like wait to rent to see these movies. That, that was kind of how Casino introduced me to the legend that is Martin Scorsese. And then I'd go back and, and watch movies that either my aunt recommended to me or intrigued me like Raging Bull and the King of Comedy, obviously for somebody who wanted to grow up to, to tell jokes or at least like being funny at that time. I hadn't even like declared to myself, I want to be a comedian. I just liked late night and I liked comedians. And so watching that movie, that was probably the film more so than Goodfellas, more so than Casino, anything that's come after where I watched that. And I was like, this Martin Scorsese guy is, is one of the great directors that we've ever had. 
Yeah, it's it's always an exciting period I find with like Scorsese in particular is when you discover him, but two like when you discover what I would almost call like the offbeat Scorsese titles, right? Mm -hmm. Like we know the Goodfellas, we know the Raging Bull, we know Taxi Driver, we know The Departed. It's the most one that I had with Scorsese was being like, all right, what's this Afters Hours about? Like, what's King of Comedy about? Like all these smaller yeah. kind of like. His dark comedy phase is probably my favorite phase of uh, Scorsese, where he's just, you know, king of comedies after hour, like just back to back. Uh, then, you know, falls it up with The Color of Money, which is not a black comedy, but just, you know, another just like 80s gem that's kind of gone underrated in the lexicon of Scorsese. And with that all said, you mentioned going to the uh the screening for hugo 2011 what's the what's the excitement in the room i was more curious than anything else i mean by this point obviously i was a fan of scorsese and and celebrated most of everything i'd seen from his catalog it's not like i'd ever seen a scorsese film and and said oh well that was a dud that was a misfire at that point and going in to see hugo i'm also thinking like that movie came out in early october that would have been when when the screening was. And so it's still Halloween, but there, there's a holiday spirit about, you know, and and that's what this that, that's like, you know, the weather's starting to change a little bit. The air's getting a little crisp. So going into a movie theater, like that's my favorite time to see a movie. It, and it doesn't have to be a horror movie in October, but just love going to see a movie. Not when it's freezing cold, but just like you're starting to get a chill in the air. There's no football game on that night. Let's go see a movie. And this was actually right around the time that I was missing a lot of screenings because of my celebrated intramural basketball career out here in LA. We did win four championships, but this was one that I missed the game to go see because it was like, it, it was, this was a, a primary point of focus for the Schmoes and for me just as a film fan. And so going to see Hugo, there was a curiosity though, because I really didn't know much about this movie I was going to go see. I didn't know what the premise was. I had no idea what was waiting for me. I knew of Ozzy Butterfield. Obviously, then you have Sasha Baron Cohen. I was excited to see and Ben Kingsley and what have you. But um, man, this movie, I had no idea what I was in for. I have a really embarrassing story that I'll admit on air right now with the film Hugo. I haven't seen it and I had never seen it until a few weeks ago. It was just for whatever reason, wow. it was one of the ones that I had missed. And so when I'm scheduling this podcast out, I message people, right? Like trying to get them the same way I did with you. And so I reached out uh, to somebody, I, I won't name the name, but like a pretty big name in the industry. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to shoot my shot here. <laughs> and again, never seeing the movie, I just always thought it was animated. I just, I don't know why, but I always thought it was animated. So I messaged the guy. Hey, I know you're a big animation guy. You want to jump on for Hugo? <laughs> and then he blocked me. Wow. Okay, after we finish recording, yeah, yeah, yeah. make sure you hit that button. I can't wait to find out who it was cuz I'll I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> if I know them if I know them oh, at all, you know. I'll get I'll get them to unblock you, I promise. I just get an alert that and it just says Blank has uh, uh, restricted access or whatever the new X uh, slogan is uh, for blocking people. But I'm just like, oh, this is this is a great. But so that's my experience with Hugo. It was this movie 
I think it's because Adventures of Tintin comes out, I want to say the same month, uh, Spielberg's uh, Tintin. Yeah. Yep. In my head, I think I thought they were both animated <laughs> films. Well, I'm like, you oh, can... it's yeah, I can forgive you for that um, because, you know, again, Scorsese had popped into Shark Tale a few years earlier. Maybe that was in your lexicon. And then, but you also mm-hmm. think about the way that this movie plays out and, and the messaging of this movie and the, the visuals. And I mean, look, the, the style and the panache with which this movie is shot and the pace that this movie moves at, the centralized location of, of this huge train station. This could very easily be an animated film where maybe instead of, a boy living in the clock it's a mouse and they're trying to escape all the cats that are down there like you can easily see this translate into uh into an animated affair so i'm giving you i'm giving you a pass i don't know if person x will give you a pass but don't give I'll see don't give me the pass because the story got worse when i turned the movie on with my girlfriend and i'm like <laughs> oh my god the animation is incredible in this it's movie. amazing and she looks over at me and she's like, it's not animated, you dumbass. And I'm like, what? And I was, it blew my mind. We were like five minutes into the movie. I'm like, oh yeah, these are all live actors. Okay, you know what? I actually am going to have to block you now for that. For <laughs> yeah, No, it's completely fair. But that's my relationship with this movie. I've seen it twice since initially seeing it uh, a few weeks ago. And I'm excited to talk about this movie because it's a very different type of movie for Martin Scorsese. And I, it's also so weird to think of where it exists within Scorsese's filmography. Yep. It's 2010 Shutter Island and 2013's The Wolf of Wall Street. And it's just like in the middle is this the most friendly kids movie that Scorsese has ever made. It's a PG movie, very fun for younger audiences. It's very bright. It's very exuberant. It is by definition, it's a kid's movie. And it's he's never returned to this. No, and it's definitely not Shutter Island, which that reminds me. I think Shutter Island was the first Scorsese movie that we saw as Schmoes, um, which is also fun to rewatch and just kind of pick up clues along the way. But with Hugo, um, I, you know, I, I consider it, and I was watching it again last night. And I was thinking it's one of those films where I I do everything I can to go visit my family during Christmas. And this feels like a holiday movie, even though it, it, it isn't commercializing any of the particular holidays. It just feels it's snowing, it's winter. And there's just some little, you know, kind of teases and hints and shots that this might be during a holiday time. So I actually think I'm going to show it to my mom because we always watch a holiday movie, many during that time of year. And I kind of consider this a holiday movie more than anything else. I I totally understand that reasoning because when watching this movie, and I think it's really the color palette of this movie, it feels very much Christmassy sure. in the sense of just even the way the lights are just shot in this movie, you know? And I think one of the aspects of it, I'm blanking on the actual cinematographer's uh, name for this movie but he's uh, Oliver Stone's cinematographer. He worked with him on Platoon, born on the 4th of July, JFK, most notably, uh, Robert uh, Richardson. And the thing that Robert has always been an expert in doing is his movies have a real bright shine quality of it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you think of some of the images in JFK where it's the overhead lights hitting and it just kind of adds this kind of whiteness to the screen. Like Hugo has that and it's really beautifully 
just rendered in it. Uh, Richardson wins the Cinematography Award at this year's Oscars. And it's just a beautiful film to watch. My first time watching this movie, the thing that I just was kept taking away from it was how much fun I was just having being in this world. Because it's not a plot-heavy movie. There are certain beats that hit throughout, and we learn things about certain characters. But I wouldn't say this is a particularly complicated plot. It really is just existing in Paris in 1930s, kind of post the first age of film and what that looks like as we're moving from not only what Malaise uh, was working on, uh, then moving over to the silent era and then where we're in in the 1930s, talkies. Like it is that transition of all. And Scorsese is such a master that it's paying homage to all of those ideas. Right. And it does a great job of painting that time in world history because you're still in the shadow of the First World War. And, you know, here in America, it, it was obviously right after the Great Depression, but pre-New Deal. And, you know, it, it, it makes a point to not hammer down that there's haves and have-nots, but it hints at it. And, and it gives you these these subtle little things that, you know, you have a police force that is just all about maintaining order, probably because they were so orderless and, and helpless when they had to go fight in war. And now you have this story that you're right, should not be too plot heavy because it can't afford to be. This is a theme heavy movie. And so the fact that you have this boy who lives in the tower and that's like, okay, that's the movie, but then it shifts a couple different times. And every time we meet a new character, the, the plot starts to be like, okay, now we're going to take that story. We're going to keep this story about this boy, but now we're going to expand the world. This very much feels like somebody growing up and going through adolescence watching this movie because your life doesn't necessarily get different or change as you get older and as you experience more of the world, but it gets bigger. And you start to comprehend more that the world is more than just about you. And for, you know, Hugo, it's more than just about keeping the clocks work. There's other broken things out there and he might be able to fix them too. And to see the way that Scorsese handles the pacing of it and, and the way that he's not throwing everything at you at once, even though the visuals are so exciting and Pardon me, Marty. They feel theme parkish at times, like you're on a roller coaster going through a train station and shoveling up to a clock tower and all these different things around the city. It still feels like he is he's always at the controls. And it's never like that train that we see a couple of times where it has to stop really fast. This this movie, it it lets you get settled and you're buckled up and it just never quite lets you in on what the next chapter is so much so that i watched this movie on on amazon right and i'll let you what movie do you think was recommended to me by amazon after this movie ended you know they always have like that little window that pops up and it says if you like this you might want to check this out it is not a scorsese movie Whoa. But it is a movie that you piece together that, that doesn't give you everything at once. You kind of meet the characters and then you have to piece together this, this mystery unraveling. Is it like, oh gosh, I'm trying to think what achieves this. I'm going to throw out the stupidest guess and it's not right. Is it David Fincher's Zodiac? 
It's yeah, I, I, as soon as you thought about it for two seconds, you were thinking too hard about it. It recommended Clue afterwards, and I was like, "Why is it recommending um, Clue?" But then you start to think about it. You're like, "Wait a minute, we are peeling back layers with Hugo and with Clue." And you meet a new character, and you care about them, and it's like it, it's just sort of you know, Clue handles it very differently. But let's say that all of these characters in Hugo are going to that house in Clue. Every time they come to the doorstep, you're like, "Okay, who's this? And how are they going to figure into this story that I care about?" And they do. And and the fact that we even care about Sasha Baron Cohen's mean police office by the end of it is, is just testament to to how beautiful the story is told and how well everything is wrapped up like a holiday movie should. I want to give some context for my answer there because I'm sure a lot of the listeners at this point are like, how do you get to Zodiac? When you were talking <laughs> about this idea of like cinematography, like, you know, the world kind of expanding characters coming in and out of the narrative. Oh, it's a great guess. Yeah. Zodiac is just like where I'm like, okay, like you start off the movie small as the movie then expands, ex expands throughout Northern California, characters coming in and out. That's the context for that guess, uh, which I guess I, at least I had the mystery aspect of it. Oh, you you were there, and and also you don't necessarily know my algorithm, and 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 the fact that I watch way too many screwball comedies late at night. So the, the clue might be more predisposition to that recommendation than Zodiac. But I gotta say. I, I might have taken Amazon up on either one if it wasn't so late by the time I watched it last night because both of those movies I, I really enjoy rewatching. I think the point that you hit on there that I find so interesting uh, was this idea, you're right, like characters coming in and out, uh, just the roller coaster feel of this movie. And that's this is not to be like poking fun necessarily at Scorsese for uh, some of his comments about superhero movies. That's not what I'm talking about, but it's just like, there is something very exciting with the fact that he got his hands on 3D. And he's talked about this very openly mm -hmm. uh, about this movie, where it's just like, this was a new technology for him. And he kind of loved just playing around with it. like, And he just incorporates it into the movie. I had the experience where I've never seen this film in 3D. You can see clearly the moments that are supposed to be rendered in 3D on Blu-ray. Like you can tell like, oh, of course, like if it's doing that camera movement, where it's coming at us, like I would probably pop out all that, but I didn't get to see it in 3D, but it does give the film kind of a kinetic energy the whole time where it's just like, it literally is as 3D, do 3D does kind of pops out alive in front of your eyes. And it's just so majestic to look at Richardson's cinematography uh, in particular, which uh, I'm going to be praising quite a bit on it. It does this wonderful thing that he also captures in Oliver Stone's films like JFK, where it does just feel world encompassing by the end of the film. Like it does just pace itself. The cinematography is literally a story in itself in this movie, where it's just like we start here and then slowly, as we learn more about film history, the world opens up and it kind of feels miraculous. It feels uh, like a miracle at times. And it's so exciting to watch and you know when i got to go to the screening to see this movie it, this was around the time in 2011 where we're like okay do we have to wear these goddamn 3d glasses every time we see a movie because like not everything's avatar okay we don't need this and and especially like the 3d that was done in post with like the the, the titans movies or whatever it's like i don't i don't feel like doing this so for hugo you, you kind of put the glasses on you're like all right marty blow me away and he achieves that within the opening credits i mean and, and it's 
it, it makes so much sense now thinking back on it because what he's doing for the audience in this advanced age of technology is giving them the same feel that the audience has had when they saw the very first motion picture is that, oh no, is this train coming at me? And now we're like, we feel like we're in this world. So 3D was actually the perfect choice to accompany this movie because we're celebrating, and I hate when people say this, but it's accurate. It's a love letter to the art of filmmaking and to the early days of, of making movies just because you love getting your friends together, you wanted to make something cool. And it, it celebrates that at every turn. Even though it doesn't tell you at the beginning of the film that that's what this is gonna be about. You know, I mean, we meet Chloe Grace Moretz as she went by the time and it's like, oh, okay, this is gonna be a nice little, tweeny kind of romance and they're going to hold hands at the end it's going to be nice you have no idea who she's related she has no idea who she's related to and then the fact that we connect all these dots it just it's such a beautiful movie and when you initially emailed me i was kind of like like ready for like king of comedy or something like that i'm so glad we settled on hugo because god what a great film i and i, I don't know if you love this movie as much as i do so i'll, I'll turn I'll, I'll give you the four I'm pretty sure back in the day I gave it five out of five schmoes. If I didn't, I, I would go back and retroactively add whatever I needed to because I just, I do not find um, a, a flaw with this movie. It's so beautiful. It's so interesting to me watching this movie so new, right? Where it's just like, I'm doing this whole series, you're like, I, I never feel like I'm never not amazed by Marty when he's directing like every time where i'm just like i'm starting to understand his style his style radically shifts and hugo is this just perfect example of a director just kind of upping his own style and game and doing everything like there's something just how i describe it and it's the same way i don't know how you felt about this movie but when i saw west side story a few years ago spielberg's uh remake of it i was just like this is a 70 year old plus man directing like he's 35 mm -hmm. like directing like he is still a young man and the energy matches that and it's so just it's so I, it took me over watching this movie where i'm just sitting there and i'm just like i'm fully bought into the magic of movies and that's essentially what this movie is the visual effects of this movie are of course like gorgeous and like it works so much in communicating the idea of who this artist george malayas Again, I am going to mispronounce his name the entire episode. Do you know how to pronounce it? Malayas? I would probably, I would probably go Melias, but I, I again, I, I took three years of French in high school and I retained literally one question that is way yeah. too forward to ask you. So that's, I, I have no, you know, I'm, I'm terrible with, with there's comedians are great at, at various things and, and I'm not uh, a, an impressionist. I'm certainly not. Uh, you know, for the, I, I can't even roll my R's and I've lived in LA for 20. Like I, I can't do anything right. I will just, for the sake of this uh, episode, I'm just going to, from here on out, I'm just going to call him Papa G. Papa G. Uh, as one it's, it's, which is Papa G. Like Papa G played by Ben Kingsley mm -hmm. in this movie. Like the idea of, you know, and I don't know, did you, did you study film in college at any point? Like, did you see his 1902 film, I think it's called Pan on the Moon. Is that what it is? I, uh, no, a trip to the moon. I, you know, it, it somehow it made its way into my into my personal zeitgeist at some point before seeing Hugo. So I recognize the imagery. But no, I, I, I took like a film class in college just because I like watching movies and 
I figured even back then I knew more movie trivia than, than most other people on the street. So I figured I could like skate by and I think I ended up getting like a B minus something like that. So it wasn't terrible, but I had no intention of, of, of being a film student or certainly uh, wanting to, to direct film. And I'll tell you why movies like Hugo, because I put that thing on and I was like, thank God I don't do this. For, I can't imagine being a direct, a fellow director and watching something like that. And then you got to go direct, like, it just, it hurts my head. Even watching what Papa G's movies were doing, it hurts my head to think about pulling all that stuff together. Like, I'm best when I'm by myself or maybe one other person with me. And that's it. And that's the show, folks. Like, I can't pull off a production like that. And uh, so, I mean, again, it, 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 it it's a marvel. This movie is... The filmmakers way back in the day, they were the pioneers of this art form, were just head and shoulders creatively above anything that I could ever aspire to be. I have the exact same like feeling watching these movies where I'm just like, I this has to be so physically taxing in a way that I just don't understand. Like I love when a movie feels effortful. Like where I'd mm -hmm. like, obviously there are some directors who it's just like, you can kind of just feel the effortlessness of their ability to just craft. And that is exciting. And it definitely has its place. And I'm definitely love movies that feel that way. There is something where you just watch a movie and I'm like, I, the amount of detail that was planned, thought out and executed is just kind of blowing my mind where I just don't even know how to contemplate it, where I'm watching it. And I'm just like, this is overbearing to me because I just kind of don't understand mentally. Like there's a mental block between me being able to do what Martin Scorsese does in my life. Like, and I think this also just comes to the fact that he works with really talented people. I mean, uh, yeah. his editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, like, you know, he's been with her since the beginning. He gets people like uh, Richardson in on this. He gets John Logan, who already wrote The Aviator for him. Like he gets a talented cast of people to work behind the scenes with him. And that certainly inspires the movie, but it's also just watching it. And I'm just like, I, I don't know how you achieve this slash how your brain is able to get to this moment. No, th this is because not an, th this isn't a reach. This isn't an overstatement. I feel more confident that I could pull off brain surgery on you better mm -hmm. than I could make a movie like Hugo, because at least with brain surgery, I could like go step by step, but like, there, there's a there's a creative genius to to these movies that I I can't even fathom, and I think it won the Oscar for best visual effects as well. And it, and, and and again, you're like, wait, this Scorsese movie Hugo about a kid in a clock that's going to win the best special effects of the year? And it's like, go watch the movie. Um, this is it's something that I am looking forward to introducing my niece and nephews to because I think they're going to get so much out of this movie and you know maybe i had great movies to to watch growing up but i think this is something that if you if this movie hits you at the at a young enough age and at the right time in your life this may really foster more creative passions inside the viewer hugo also just like gets to just coast on vibes to a degree in this where you're just like <laughs> yeah i just kind of want to be here like watching and i think it is largely due as well to the score of this movie which is just when you're listening to it howard shore's score and it, it is just it brings you into 1930s uh paris where this is where we meet the character of hugo played by uh the actor uh asa butterfield we meet him he is this uh we meet him with his father played by jude law 
something happens to Jude Law's character. Now, uh, Hugo is a essentially an orphan living in the most busy train station in Paris, trying to avoid being captured by Sasha Baron Cohen, who plays the inspector in this movie. Along the way, there's this robot uh, me mechanism that is left for him that is this clue that leads to the character Papa G. That's really broad understanding of this movie, but it's a good enough plot synopsis that if you've seen the movie, you're following me. Uh, I think the aspect of this movie that's like severely underrated uh, when talking about Hugo is how good performances he gets out of kids in Hugo specifically. Yeah. Like they're both really good in this movie. Yeah. I, I said Butterfield. I, I thought that I, I couldn't remember if this or Ender's game had come out first. This came out a couple of years before Ender's game. And yeah, I, I remember, 20. I mean, you, you see him in Ender's game and you're like, this kid can act. He, he is transformative in Hugo. I mean, he's unbelievable and he can do so much without talking. He can do so much with just his eyes and, and Chloe the same way, you know? Um, and I'm glad you, you pointed out Howard Schwartz's score as well, because that does really help us out as the audience. It, it, it's very reassuring, you know, it, it can get tense at moments, but it also lets us know, Hey, things are going to be okay. Now it's going to get lighter and we're going to have somebody walk in and it's going to move the, the plot and all that stuff along. Like our characters aren't in, in danger for too long in this movie. And, and so it's comforting in that way. But yeah, I mean, he, he Scorsese is just, I, I think going back to your point about um, the kind of movies that he's still able to pull off, it was DiCaprio, I think when they were promoting Wolf of Wall Street, and he said that this guy is, you know, however old and he's still making punk rock. And, um, and that can mean any number of things. And that can, you know, the fact that he can go to these different kinds of films, I mean, you, the fact that you can go from Hugo to Silence, you know, and then to Wolf of Wall Street and get the same amount of commitment from your cast. Everybody in the cast is amazing in this movie. Like, it, there's not a dud in it. And it, it, as a matter of fact, there isn't even a, a performance that I would say is just kind of okay. I mean, how great is is Ben Kingsley, but also Helen McCrory as, as Mama Jean. God, she's good in this. And, and Michael Stolberg showing up. Yeah. Dulbar is so good in this movie as well. Like everyone comes to play for Scorsese. And I also think he is such a incredible director of actors, which is he's able to take the qualities of an actor that they're best at and dissect that and put it into the movie where it's usually they're mm -hmm. working with their strengths. They're playing slightly at times against type. In some cases they're playing type, but it's just this, ability to just use all of the actor that is good and cut out all the fat that isn't good yeah. and that's what he yeah. does because Sasha Baron Cohen is an actor that I love and obviously you know he's been in like some of the funniest films of all time like I will contend the two Borat films are legendary in their comedy mm -hmm. he's also been in like a handful of stinkers and specifically when he plays a little bit more serious he can do it well occasionally and he can also just kind of missed the mark and in this movie he's playing serious while also being the comedic uh, relief he has a full arc about him and it's really rewarding because you get him in there for of course to be a comedic relief at times and his that doesn't undercut his arc he is allowed to be funny but it's not that he is a funny character the entire movie 
Yeah, he, the laughs that he gets are are shocking because of how menacing he is at the outset of this movie. So when he's locking up that other poor kid and sending him to the orphanage, and he's and he's talking to his buddy down there, and he's like, "Oh yeah, you got married. You get you're having a kid. Congrats. Wait, it might not be yours." And like just just his lines, just as as somebody who aspires to be funny on stage, watching how good Sasha Baron Cohen is at being evil villain for most of this movie but also still making us laugh is is incredible because he's not making us laugh because of how evil he is he's just he's kind of this this he goes from being this scary guy to kids to this this mundane dude who's just trying to get through the day with his you know the, the metal thing on his leg and talking to his co-workers who he really doesn't care about that much and it's like it, it the fact that he minds any comedy out of this movie is phenomenal the fact that he got like loud audible chuckles from me watching it again last night it's just there's very few folks who can who can do that and you just mentioned michael Subark, who if i'm correct don't you have a weird relationship with him if i recall from the show you were like off the train for stool bar for years if i recall right it's because and i stand by it, it's because of men in black three i hated that movie and I thought that his character as Griff, the uh, the extraterrestrial visitor, was so annoying. I oh my couldn't... God, he's in that movie. Dude, I hated that movie and I hated that character and he was so annoying. And so, you know, I'm sure he's he's doing he's doing the best he can with that film. I just and I know some people like, like Men in Black 3. OK, I just could not stand that movie. And I, I, I and I and his I was like this Stoolboard guy. I, I can't. Do, and then. I think it probably wasn't until <laughs> until Call Me By Your Name. I know that he's done great stuff since then. And and he is a great actor. So now I'll say our relationship is great because I've never met yeah. him. I adore that guy's entire filmography with one notable asterisk. Seeing him in Call Me By Your Name, I remember being like, wait, I think Christian might have told me during our review of Call Me By Your Name. He's like, yeah, but you know who else that guy played, right? And I was like, who, who? I need to see this movie. He's like, he was Griff the Alien. I'm like, no. It was like, it was like Luke finding out Darth Vader's his father. Like, I didn't want to believe it. But, but you know, it, you see him in something like this and it's like, God, he's so good. Yeah, no, he's so perfectly fit for Scorsese. And I think that's also kind of the quality that makes Scorsese the best is there's very few examples of characters being miscast in his movies. I think like, I think the unfair one to some degree, but also fair is Cameron Diaz and gangs of New York just doesn't really work anything meaningful, but it's also like, that's a studio note that is, you know, Miramax saying we need a star in this movie uh, to promote it. But like, besides that, like it's largely positive in his casting and Stubar is just another of these guys who just comes in, to the movie, I mean, it's the same with Jude Law. Jude Law is, like, coming on. Mm -hmm. If this is 2011, I think that means he's had the, both Sherlock Holmes films at this point, because I think that's 2009, 2011. Like, you know, like, Jude Law's a name at this point, and he comes in to play for this movie for about five minutes, and he provides, like, the whole emotional heart of Hugo to start. The fact that this kid can go on this journey basically trying to get answers for his dad and the impact is felt just simply because it's Jude Law just crushing it for five minutes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't remember if, I think Contagion came out the same year. Um, and, and so it was somewhere around there. But he, you're right, he, he has such limited screen time. But just his presence, like you see why there is hope and there is 
uh, work ethic and there is uh you know that that inventor spark in hugo and it's because of his father and to only meet him for that brief period of time it's almost done purposefully because that makes us miss him too you know like now we miss hugo's dad because they had such a great time together they're just building stuff at a clock tower what's better than that and then to have it and like i could i could have spent the rest of the movie in that scene of just this boy and his dad collecting trinkets trying to get him to work again and to lose that so quickly it's almost like we the audience lost something that we're trying to find now now the audience is broken and we need Hugo to fix us too and uh yeah I mean he's everybody that pop Emily Mortimer is great as this sort of you know maybe kind of love interest if uh if Sasha Baron ever gets the the rocks to just walk up to her and talk to her um you know th there's so many characters that you see the guy from uh from Harry Potter uh I, his, his name escapes me but he's he's so good in oh. this too just in a tiny tiny role Richard something uh, Richard Griffiths oh Richard and, Griffith. um, yeah and 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 Ray Winstone you know showing up as as you hope you get a good uncle, sometimes you get the Ray Winstone character, <laughs> Uncle Claude. Yeah, no, this this movie's full of incredible actors, and we're like, it's always the tough challenge for the movie that we're both praising, where I'm like, we haven't hit the actual film a lot, but like, it's it's the kind of the magic of Scorsese, right? Where we're just like, everything about this movie like sings for me, where I'm just watching and I'm like, every choice is the right choice in it and like that's such a magical feeling to watch for the first time where you're just like i'm totally in line with a movie and like it, every scene kind of just gives you enough like it never feels stretched out despite being like a little bit longer especially for a kids movie this movie is a little bit longer i think at about two hours and 20 minutes like it certainly feels long but not in a way that it ever felt slow and there's just these magical moments throughout like and I think this is also the case of where Scorsese is just like the one of the best directors to ever do it. It's just like his ability to indulge without it ever becoming oversaturated, I guess, where you're just like, you're in this scene, right? Where the two kids are watching the movie and she's watching a movie for the first time. And that magic, like you literally talked about the train coming up uh earlier in the movie like that scene is literally played on screen uh in yeah. this movie where it's just like the reaction to all that like that is like that could have been the whole movie and it's not like it chooses not to like overshadow the movie but it's moments like that where i'm just like that's one of my favorite moments from the movie and you know i mean I, i've given away a little bit about this movie uh so if you haven't seen it yet listeners and viewers I'm, i apologize I'll, I'll give no more spoilers but i will say the way that I'll i watch movies now okay the, the, the way I, I tend to watch movies now especially ones that are two plus hours is you know i'll, I'll get home and i'll uh, and i'll i'll put it on and it has to really really grab me to stay through the whole movie i'll watch an hour and i'll miniseries it then i'll watch the next hour the next night and i'm fine living like that that's my truth but and so i was like i put on hugo and i was like ah maybe i can you know wake up and finish the rest tomorrow because it's points dude i i did not even think about the time the rest of the movie and it was just zip by and and i and i remember this movie impacting me emotionally i'm pretty dead inside so i don't actually like cry a lot but i remember this movie having some sort of emotional impact when I saw it in theaters. And I always assumed it was at one part, but it actually 
last night ended up being a few minutes before that when Michael Stolbar's character, this this film, you know, it, <laughs> Papa G, uh, you know, student, um, comes to the house and he's talking to uh, to Mama, and mm. he and it seems like okay, well, he's just going to pack his things and go. Papa G don't want any part of this, and Mama turns to walk away, and he's like, oh, by the way, um, you're you're just as beautiful now as you were yeah. back in his films. The look on her face, dude. He, and she's just like, somebody remembered me. And and somebody, my work had an impact on somebody to see that's when that emotional, you know, fire gets stoked. And I feel like the guys in the train in the movie shoveling coal into that thing, like, oh boy. And then it just and then it's just this wave of emotions that hit you with each character realizing they are in fact still fixable and they can in fact look back on their past with fond memories. It's just, this movie does everything, man. Everything that you want in, again, I hate to belabor the point, a holiday film. I'm making my family watch this at Christmas. That's all there is to it. There is a quintessential nature of Martin Scorsese that he can never escape. And that's that he's a film lover and he, is devoted mm -hmm. a lot of his career to film preservation. And you understand why that quest is so important for him in the context of watching Hugo with moments like you just spoke about where it's just like having the art live on and what that actually means and what that represents and what this humanity and human stories it tells. And that's like the magic. I keep using the word magic, but it is just mm -hmm. like, that is the effect of what uh, Papa G's doing is like that is what this movie is and it's that scene in particular i think it's the scene also where and every i've all i think every great director does end up making a movie about movies like and we saw like yeah. five of them last year three of them were good to the other two were a little questionable but like we do see that and like there's always the montage and i, I it gets me every time when you just see someone making a movie and that scene we see it with Papa G in this movie where this is how they made the old 1900 silent films on, you know, camera, uh, just five minutes, all the sets, all the elaborate nature of it. And then we kind of get through this montage where 30 years has passed and he's kind of just forgotten. And that heartbreak of that moment, Ben Kingsley in this movie is fantastic in a way that I always know Ben Kingsley is up for. And it's also really exciting when you do get it because he often will take a paycheck. He is also not an actor scared of getting paid a lot of money to just kind of be on set for a few days. So the fact that he's yeah. in this movie, great, is just like, it's so enjoyable because when he's locked in, there's no one who can do what Ben Kingsley does and the magic that he brings to a role. It's just, there's a juice, there's a charisma to him. And there's just this, you know, he's not the tallest of guys, but when he's speaking or when you see him, he does feel larger than life. There, there, there's an authority where there needs to be with Ben Kingsley, and he certainly can bring that. But then there's also th this vulnerability that that we, even when he's being, you know, the tough guy, uh, standoffish, doesn't want anything to do with this kid. You still see somewhere in there is is a softness, is this spot. It's it's you're still finding the joy and finding the light, and it's hard to see in that character initially. It's hard to see in Sasha Baron Cohen's character, but there's a few times during the movie where you just see this little hint of humanity, that they aren't this as cold-hearted 
as the front that they're appearing to be. It, it's like looking at a kid in a really well-designed Halloween costume where, yeah, sure, you look like you look like the Wolfman, but there's a little bit of, I can still see it's a little bit you in there. And, and that's what Hugo is able to, able to draw out through his story. And, and the way that this film is, is told by Scorsese, I mean, to, you know, going, going to your, your love of the NBA, I mean, this guy is, is the LeBron of filmmakers. He can, there, there's nothing he cannot do on a basketball court. And there's nothing that Scorsese can do, can't do uh, behind the camera. Yeah, no, it's pretty incredible because even in this film, there is just like, I, the thing that has made Scorsese so interesting to me is of course, like some of our directors really love working in mystery. Like where we're, they really do enjoy the kind of illusion of we'll never fully understand them. They want to keep us like kind of a distance. Scorsese, if you watch any movie or interview behind the scenes interview for movies is what I'm trying to say, like about him or any interviews that he's done on Letterman throughout the years, like you ask him a question, he'll tell you every second of what he <laughs> framed in that scene. Like even just like I watched this interview that came out from the year Hugo came out. I found it on YouTube. I forget. I might've been GQ. I might have it wrong, but he's breaking down the, like, he's like, Oh, okay. This shot right here where uh, Hugo is hanging off the clock. Like that's of course based on, I believe that's Buster Keaton's stunt. Uh, I don't think that's Chaplin. I think it's Keith and Stun. And then like, he's like, oh, this scene right here, like this is from the 1901, like movie that I watched in college, like all this stuff where it's just like, and he talks about it quite openly. He's like, I steal from the other directors as well. Like, you know, Raging Bull, of mm -hmm. course, has the famous example where the shower, uh, sorry, the fight sequence is modeled after the shower sequence in Psycho. Like all these like little details where he's fully admitting it. Like he's like, no, I am a student of filmmakers and directors, and thus I take that into my movies. And it creates this, like, there's a detail to this world that feels so refined because Scorsese is understanding. It. And I think it's why he can connect to a story like this. I've heard some people critique Hugo as, like, it's hard to emotionally buy into this movie. And I think that's a weird criticism for this movie because I actually think this is about as relatable of a movie as you can get in. Of course, every opinion's everyone's. Like, they can have their own opinion on it. But this is a movie that I actually think is so easily digestible. And it's just, it's so easy to relate to because we all had that moment growing up where we're just like, what am I doing here? What's my purpose? And look at this new world that I've discovered and what that those revelations mean for myself and how that affects the world in general, but more specifically, how it affects me growing up and what that means. And we've also all had that loss in our life. Like eventually we all come across loss and coping with that. And I think this movie is a fantastic exploration of all those themes. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, for me, the buy-in at the time was easy. I, I, I lost my dad the year prior uh, to seeing mm. Hugo. But then you also have, like, I think for anybody, especially in, in the kind of the social media, you know, world that we live in now, everything is so fast twitch. Every, everything feels so, like, final. You know, like, oh, I, th this, this didn't do well. I'm, I'm done for, you know. I posted this on Instagram and nobody liked it. I'm, 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 I'm out. I'm never going to work again this time, you know. Like, like for, for what I do, it's like I had a bad set. I'm never going to get to go on stage again. To think that you lost, to think that you failed, 
permanently at something and to see that, no, that there, it doesn't matter how long you sometimes have to wait, um, how tough it is to get there, who else you need to let into your life to show you that there are second chances and there is redemption and there is still joy in your past to be found. Like that's pretty damn relatable because we all want that. We, we all want mm. that. And even at just the base level, like most of us are never going to be a small boy who's been literally orphaned in a clock tower, but we've all felt like that kid where you're just kind of, you're in here and you're doing your little thing and you feel very unappreciated by the world. Everybody in that train station is looking at these clocks and they're relying on these clocks to tell the time. And he gets a window into everybody else's life, but nobody really knows who he is. You, you feel like you're doing so much work and, and you're not being sung. Your praises are not being honored, you know, and uh, we all have those kind of feelings from time to time. And so to see it just, you know, play out in such a rewarding way, uh, for a change in a movie like Hugo, I think it's just, it's an endlessly, um, you know, relevant kind of storytelling that we get. So bad news, Mark. Uh, I think our time has like passed in the sense that I don't think you and I will ever be able to be orphan boys living in a clock tower. So <laughs> I think we're going to have to strike that one off the list for both of us. I, we're I think broken. we're just... <laughs> I think if we go to Paris right now and just hang out in the clock tower... We just get arrested really quickly, and no one finds a cue. It's it's tough. I think there's a there's a great story. I think it's Jeff Foxworthy who wanted to be an Atlanta Braves ball boy so bad when he was and he never <laughs> got the chance. He started making some headway into being a comedian, and he ended up getting to be the bad boy when he was like 29 or something like that. Like he wasn't famous. Jeff Foxworthy might be a redneck yet, but he was like on the Tonight Show, I think, once or twice. And he wanted to be a bad boy so bad he got the opportunity. And he said everybody on the team was looking at him like, "Who's this? Who's this old ball boy that we have?" And it's like he just really wanted to be a ball boy for a day. So the dream is still alive, my friend. I I had that moment uh, recently where. Or at Golden One, they gave like the opportunity for someone to take a free throw. And I'm like, I got the opportunity. I'm like, yes, I'm going to go out there like Golden One, like center stage, like Kings are practicing on the side. Like I'm going to do it. And I just miss horribly, like no net, nothing. Just like, <laughs> and I feel the deflation because like it's at the, I think it's pregame. I think it was pregame when we did it. But so like the arena isn't full, but there's people in there. And also specifically, like, I know for a fact Deer and Fox watched me miss that shot. Mm, and I yeah. now have to live with that. So my my dreams are crushed. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I got to play, my intramural team got to play at uh, halftime of a Wake Forest, I think it was Wake UVA basketball game when I was a student there. And I got to, and so we, and the game's like 10 minutes. And so I'm like ready to, I'm ready to jack some threes, right? And I went one for three. I missed the first two badly, but I made a I made a bet with my dad. And for the game, because my dad knew we were going to be playing, my dad was sitting courtside. He got courtside seats. So he watched his kid, you know, live out his dream of playing at halftime. And um, at my intramural team, we get the, you know, we get the inbound. And I bet my dad a hundred bucks that I, that I drain a three at halftime. And this is, this is ended up being the last shot I took. And I, I get the ball and it's a little bit, it's not quite Steph Curry range, but it's a little away from the three point line. And I gun it and swish and he's right behind me. And I turn around 
and I just do the uh, I do the now the Johnny Manziel, you know, I just do the oh. little money sign to him real quick. And so, you know, my, my, my dreams were on the ropes there after badly missing two three pointers, but finally got it with the third one. I'll tell this story real quick before we start wrapping things up. And I, I will not say my friend's name uh, just for their <laughs> own protection. But when we were in elementary school, we did this thing where we would play, uh, we, we would sing the national anthem for the Kings, right? Like you'd go out there with the choir, you'd sing the national anthem. And they'd occasionally let you like before games, like free, all that stuff, like, you know, They'd let you play around on the court a little bit, like get a few shots up, whatever. Awesome. I had a friend shot it from three point, and it ended up hitting a Kings player. And I do not remember which player it was. <laughs> and he went out injured for that game. Really? <laughs> wow. Talk we about bad game. luck for the home team. We lost that game. Huh. And like I, I think it was a starter. I really want to say he injured a starter for like two games. Oh, you got to investigate that, man. It, I would never I let my. I'm, I'm me. What year that was? Because that was, I think it would have been like 2009, 2010 season. Because I want to say LeBron was in his last year at <laughs> Cleveland. Because I actually, I think we played Cleveland that night. I think, yeah, because I performed the national anthem in front of LeBron James and Shaq, which I didn't realize was significant awesome. until I was older. But yeah, no, it was that game. I'm pretty sure it was that game that injury happened and we lost the player. <laughs> That's hysterical. I would never let my friend live that down. That's great. So, uh, but, but with that all said, uh, <laughs> is there any kind of final thoughts you have on Hugo before we just get to the last few questions uh, to wrap up the show? Uh, you know, I, I feel like Hugo is an underrated gem in Martin Scorsese's filmography. I think, uh, you know, when you think Scorsese, there's a few different types of film you think of. And Hugo may not be a family film, a holiday film, may not be at the top of the list. But if you're a fan of, of movies in general, obviously, the history of movies. But if more so, put all that aside, you just want to see a great story with positive messaging, wonderful themes celebratory atmosphere in the hands of maybe the most masterful filmmaker in history you have to watch hugo it's that simple you need to see this movie yeah i sorry i fully agree this is just a wonderful movie and it's the case of with martin scorsese this is another of those cases where i'm like this is a five out of five star movie uh and i probably wouldn't even call it in his top 10 for me where I'm just like, this is such an incredible filmmaker that like he has about 15 of these movies that I'm like, these are all timers. And like mm -hmm. just the, his his work speaks for itself. And Hugo is just another example where I'm just like, this guy just kind of can't be stopped. Like there is Martin Scorsese could only ever be a director. And it's just so lucky that we get to live in a period of time where he's making films. Like that's the greatest joy uh of being yeah. a movie fan is the fact that every few years you get a Marty film and when we no longer have that, like that's going to be a real tough thing to handle, but watching movies like this, like that's the comfort, like this art will live on and Hugo will live on. Uh, so that's kind of my final points on uh, Hugo. So Mark, before I let you leave, we're wrapping this show up, but I have three questions for you. So we'll just start with the two that are kind of tied together. I asked you, who is an actor who has passed that you would have loved to have seen 
work with Martin Scorsese. So they've never worked with him. You just would have loved to see it. And the second part of the question is who is an actor still alive that you would like to see work with Martin Scorsese? Haven't worked with them before. Just would love to see that actor in a Scorsese film. Um, I maybe some recency bias here, but I, I feel like uh, Ray Stevenson would have would have just delivered such a powerhouse performance in something. Now he, and again, I might say a name that you're like uh, they actually were in the Scorsese movie, but uh, I know Ray Stevenson was in Kill the Irishman, but he was not in The Irishman. Um, I, I feel like he's somebody who who really just would have fit so well in that world and you know the other the other actor that always is i feel like just undersung and so capable of lending a nice touch to a movie like hugo or something else is an actor by the name of hal holbrook that i just like he was in a movie called water for elephants and i remember reviewing it and like it the middle of that i think it's reese witherspoon and robert pattinson like it was very unmemorable but it's yeah. bookended by Hal Holbrook. And I'm like, God, Hal Holbrook, that move, that whole movie should have been Hal Holbrook. And so mm-hmm. I, I would have given him the Scorsese treatment. He may have been in one of Scorsese's movies that I just forgot, but those are the two names that, that immediately popped in my head when I when I saw that question. Um, somebody- in honor? Oh, yeah. sorry, keep going. No, I was going to say, is somebody that, that that is still alive, that still has a chance to work with him. I've always been a huge um, fan of, of Dane DeHaan and the talent. And I saw him, I just finally saw uh, Oppenheimer. Um, I saw Barbie, and then I waited a good three months to see Oppenheimer. And uh, mm-hmm. and that was my most anticipated movie of the year, and I waited so long to see it. But I'm, I'm glad I saw it. And I think really anybody in that cast, um, is, is they were all so great. But... I think Dan DeHaan really is uh, is somebody who could get a big boost and I think could help a Scorsese movie. I like both those picks and Dan DeHaan is really good in Oppenheimer, like really good in Oppenheimer. Uh, I'll give two picks real quick. In honor of you, I'll do both comedians. So I'll go <laughs> with an actor who has passed. Uh, Robert, uh, sorry, excuse me. Robin Williams obviously just would have been incredible oh, yeah. in a real life. It's like I just like what he'd be able to accomplish and just like I, I think Williams was a really great dramatic actor and not all the roles he picked for himself were necessarily what I would call what his strengths were, but I think Scorsese wouldn't be able to pull the humanity of Williams, like in a role like Goodwill Hunting, where I think I think that by far Williams' best performance as an actor is just him and Goodwill Hunting. And I think he would have been able to deliver a quality performance like that. Uh, again, with Scorsese, and he gave a lot of great performances. I, that just would have been one uh, that I would have been excited to see. The other one is, I just, I want them to make a movie that I like again, and it's been so long. And I just want to see what Jim Carrey would look like in a, a Scorsese title. Like, again, this is also an actor who like, he is so well utilized occasionally. Like, obviously, like his comedies, like so many of the early ones, like he's such a character actor uh, at his core. Like Ace Ventura, Dumb and Dumber, like mm-hmm. all that. Like, that's the incredible stuff. But then, like, you see a role of him, like, in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where it's just like, I think that's the full experience of Carrie bringing together the comedy and the heart and the humanity. I would just kind of love to see him, like, give himself over to creative like Scorsese, which he's been so resistant of doing for it feels like the past 20 years. Like 
I'm trying to think of the last time he really like went away from comedy. It was probably the number 23, I think was probably the last one that I can think of. Maybe I love you, Philip Morris, a little bit. Um, yeah, like, he. It, it, it's. Just, I. I feel this because both him and and Robin could like walk that line of darkness very well. Um, and then right below that, as far as just missed opportunities, I would probably say because I feel like there were great dramatic performances in them, but they never got to that point in their career. It would be John Belushi and Chris Farley. Like they, yeah. y- you could see when they passed, they were right on the cusp of like, no, I want to get away from just being the guy that I have been and show you this other side of me. And I feel like Scorsese obviously would have been a great guy to kind of draw that out of him. Same with Candy. Candy was another of those guys who was just like, and he had JFK yeah. luckily, but it was just like, I think post JFK, he would have done a lot more roles like that, but he sadly passes away shortly. He's a phenomenally post. underrated actor. Yeah. So good. Uh, so with that said, one last question for you, Mark, and probably the hardest question I will ask you today. Your top five Martin Scorsese films. Let's start five and go all the way up to one. It's the toughest question we're going to be asked all year. I mean, this it, it's you know <laughs> it's subject to change, but um, I I think I would probably have to say as follows: <sighs> Taxi Driver is is going to be my number five. Um then it the number four spot is the one that I was kind of like, do I go here? Do I go here? I'm going to put Raging Bull at four. Um, I'm going to do The King of Comedy at three. I'm going to do Hugo at two. And I'm going to do Goodfellas is, is, is one. No, no surprise there. I think some people might be shocked at how high Hugo is on the list. And I just find Hugo to be a movie that if if all things are equal, I feel like the the nod to cinema, it gives it just a slight bump over those other movies. But, you know, with Scorsese, everything is an honorable mention, you know, um, everything is. An, I, I got this close to putting silence in there over Taxi Driver, but that's a, that's a top five that I can I can sleep well at night. And, and, and if anybody pokes a hole, they're like, why, why do you have Hugo so high? My simple answer is go watch the movie again yeah uh yeah no i think that's a great top five uh and i just want to thank you so much for being on today's show uh this was a blast this was a really fun episode i hope you had fun and i just want to give you a second to just tell everyone where they can find you sure you can find me on all social media including you ben i have not blocked you on x yet um you can do all that stuff (laughs) at mark ellis live and um you can uh, check out my new uh, stand-up specials on YouTube, Alive and Well, and I'm probably coming to a city near you. And maybe either this year or 2024, set up a lot of tour dates for next year where I'm, I'm kind of excited. I maybe have like, I'd probably say 30, 25, 30 minutes that I'm like ready to show the world of the new hour that I'm trying to build. And I'm really, really starting to get excited. I wasn't excited about it for a long time. <laughs> now I'm starting to get excited about where, where I could go with it. So um you know, I'll be in uh, Seattle at the end of this year uh, around Christmas time. And then next year, I got dates in Portland. I got Boston, uh, a couple other fun spots, and loads more to come. So two questions for you before I let you leave. One is, where's that Sacramento date? And two, are you ready to light the beam when you come to Sacramento? 
I am totally in when I come to Sacramento, and that should be in 2024. There's a, I think there's a new club, or maybe they reopened um, that uh, I've been talking to. So we're flirting Perfect. probably sometime in the summer is what I'm hoping for. Fingers crossed. Perfect. Then I hope that I will be able to see you then uh, in person. And I just want to thank you so much uh, for coming on this show, for talking Hugo with me. Uh, we will be back tomorrow with the Wolf of Wall Street. So to everyone who listened, thank you so much. If you like this video slash if you're listening to it on audio, like and subscribe. It helps me and it's free. So why not? So Mark, thank you for joining me today. I'm Ben Friedman here from Film School Dropout. Take care and bye bye.